Please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll actually be reading the whole chapter here, these 11 verses. This is indeed a continuation of the book of Ezra. And in fact, uh, throughout the history of the church, some have called this Ezra 2. Again, just as it was for Ezra, sometimes there is some question about the author. It is agreed upon, of course, that the author of Ezra is the same author of Nehemiah. And they also believe that this is the same author of First and Second Chronicles because of the similarities. <clears throat> but what we have here in this account that is a continuation of Ezra, there's about maybe 13 to 14 years uh, that have passed between where we left off in Ezra and to, until this particular instance in Nehemiah 1. It is indeed a wonderful book that... I'm sure some of us are very familiar with. Uh, of course, you know some of the great things that go on in this book is the rebuilding of the wall, uh, so many other things of, of overcoming the adversity that it took to do so. It is going to be a wonderful book, just as Ezra was as well. But as we jump into this book, one of the first things that we find from the very beginning is this amazing prayer by Nehemiah. And just to let you know this, Uh, This particular prayer is one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture. It is a prayer that I have read often. I still go back to just because of the content of it. Because no matter how many times you read over these prayers that are within the Scripture, you continually learn so much. You learn of of how to approach God and and the things that we ought to be praying for, the, the mindset and the demeanor that we need to approach God. So many different things there. But some of the other things that we find that we should give great attention to is the need for prayer. Prayer is one of the common denominators of all the faithful people of God. Not just in Scripture, but throughout the history of the church. Prayer is vital to the Christian life, especially in times of distress. We're going to find here in Nehemiah, he's not even going through the distress per se. He only hears about it. And the very thing that he does is he pours out his heart to the Lord, his God, in prayer. Because prayer is the go-to means during a crisis or any other circumstance. It is our weapon in times of great distress. It is indeed our communion with God, but it is a weapon because we are, we are beseeching the God who is, the God of the universe, and whatever it is that we are going through or whatever it is that we're hearing of other people going through, and we are appealing perhaps on their behalf, sometimes on, on behalf of ourselves, to the God who can act, who has all power, who can do whatever he pleases. We are appealing to that God to act in our behalf or the behalf of others, knowing that nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing can hinder him as he acts to perform his will. He is a truly, he, he truly is our present help in difficult times. In this prayer that we find in Nehemiah 1, we see a great example of faith, but also a great example of prayer. And we can learn 
so much from reading this. I know for a lot of us, we like to read the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And so sometimes the question may be, why, why do you want to read somebody else's prayer? Because you can learn a lot from reading other people's prayer, especially people who were committed as, as much as the, the Puritans were, for example. <clears throat> you can learn so much. You can learn, just as with Nehemiah, what things that they, they said about the Lord their God. How did they approach Him? Again, what was, what was the demeanor? What I mean by that is, is, is how are they coming before God? What is the disposition of, their, of their, their heart, their attitude of everything as they come before God? There are people that I know very close, people that I know, <clears throat> who when they approach the Lord have no concept of approaching the Lord in a way to honor Him. They come before the Lord sometimes very angry, uh, not guarding their steps as they approach the Lord, as the Scripture tells us to. And, and, and often, just to be honest with you, it made me very nervous just being around them. Because if you, if you have no, you know, if you don't have any understanding of the majesty and the splendor of God and the God to whom you're praying to and you're just going to come very arrogantly or you're going to come very pridefully or whatever the case is, I don't really want to be around you when you're doing it. Because there should be a healthy fear of God. Indeed, God is for His people. God loves His people. We're going to find that out here in this passage. At the same time, you should have a healthy respect of God when you approach Him in prayer even in times when you are angry, even in times when you are distressed greatly, when your heart is, is just yearning for the people in your life or, or whatever, when bitterness has is, is arisen in your heart, and sometimes when that temptation to fall into bitterness is towards the Lord, there still should be a respect, a great respect that you have when you approach the Lord. And we learn from other people's prayers, from prayers in the Scripture, how we ought to approach the Lord. It teaches us about prayer. You know, there, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing embarrassing about learning how to pray. We all need to learn how to pray, and to pray well, and to pray the Scripture, and to pray the truths back to the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, we can have others to help us and instruct us and to to, to give us an understanding of how we ought to do that. And other times it's by reading prayers. Reading the prayers of the great ones within the scripture that God used so mightily. Nehemiah teaches us uh, about prayer, of course. But in his prayer, he shows us what great concern that we ought to have for the people of God. Not just for ourselves. How we ought to intercede on behalf of others. And to genuinely intercede on behalf of others. Not just to give it a passing thought. How we ought to identify ourselves with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognizing that our people are all the people of God that are around the world. We see a lot of unity that is presented to us in this prayer as well. So may our hearts be desirous to learn even more about the kind of prayer that pleases God as we 
work our way into this passage. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, and we will read the first chapter of Nehemiah. This is the living Word of God. Let us hear the words, and let it adhere to our hearts. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of, Lord, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Again, we come into your presence, and we ask you, O Father, to guide us through this passage and teach us. Teach us about prayer. Teach us about your glory, your holiness, the character of the God whom we appeal to. Teach us of how we ought to respond to one another, how we ought to pray for one another, how we ought to be so concerned with one another. Father, guide us through this passage, and may the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us adhere to our hearts, that we may grow in our understanding, grow in our faith, and grow in our love for you. Be magnified this day. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. Now again, this is probably 13, 14 years after the events of Ezra. This is going to be, as we'll find out in chapter 2, this is going to be in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Back in chapter 7 of Ezra, when Ezra had first approached the king, 
it had said that it was in the seventh year of his reign. And then there were some events that took place. There was some time that had passed. And so we'll say 13 to 14 years that have passed. We have Nehemiah, who's not a Levite. He's not a scribe. He's not uh, like Ezra is. He's a layman. He's part of the children of Israel. But he is one whose character really distinguishes him from others. And it's going to be this man whom the Lord is going to use greatly. He says, now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is in November, December, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. In Susa is the place where Daniel had his vision of the ram with the two horns. It's going to be the same palace, as he says there, in Susa, the capital or, or the palace. <clears throat> this is the same place in which uh, Ahasuerus or Xerxes has his great feast with his princes and all of that in the book of Esther. This is right in the capital city. This is right at the heart, in the heart of the, the Persian Empire where Nehemiah is serving. We learn that he's serving as a cupbearer. He's probably very well off, just to be honest with you. But even having things as good as he did, his heart and his concern was still not just caught up in everything that he was being able to do or privileged to do. His heart and his concern was all for the people of God who were back in the homeland. He's, at this time, Hananiah, one of his brothers, some men of the, uh, from Judah had come. They're giving word about what is going on. He inquires about them. Here's some of the things about this man's character. The first thing that he does when you have these people coming in from Judah... He's well off, he's doing good, he's the cupbearer of the king. But again, his heart, his concern is for the people of God. What does he do? He inquires about them. How are they doing? What's going on? Are they flourishing? Are things going well? I know that Ezra had left, Ezra's there. How are things going? And he hears very distressing news. Things aren't going well. Now, it does make us wonder what has happened within these last 13 to 14 years from what we found earlier in, at the end of Ezra. At the end of Ezra, you had very special circumstances, as we had discussed before, but you had the people of God who were, who were forsaking the, their spouses who were idolaters, and they were committing themselves back to the Lord their God in order to do what was right before Him. So it seemed like a, maybe a, a small revival had happened, but then something, some other things have apparently taken place within these 13 to 14 years. Here's what they found. Here's the word that they bring back. That the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress. Things aren't going well. Not like they should have done. They should have been back and they should have been flourishing and things should be going well because they have entered back into covenant with God and they are serving God faithfully and God should be, should be blessing them. Why is these things happening? What's going on? They're in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, here's some things to think of and maybe you can go back and you can study a little bit of this as well. Is there some various opinions on... The walls being broken down and the gates being burned. Did this, did this happen recently? Is this something that, that had happened within those years? Some are 
you know, they have, they have differing opinions on it as they were given permission by Artaxerxes in the seventh year of his reign in the, in the decree that he gave in order to build back the walls. And in fact, when you find in Ezra, when you have the enemies of the people of God, as they write to the king, they tell the king, they're building the walls, and if they get the walls built, then you're going to have problems. Now, was that something that they had said, or was that something that maybe they were anticipating once they got done with the house of God? We don't know. We don't, we don't read in Ezra of the walls ever being built. So maybe it's, it has come to a point that the walls that are down and the gates that have been burned have been that way ever since Nebuchadnezzar had come in in, in the early, or excuse me, the late 500s and had burned the city. They were just never rebuilt. They have been as they were. They're exposed to their enemies. The enemies can infiltrate at any moment. There are no walls to fortify the city to protect them. They should have already been built. So what does he do upon hearing this? He inquires about them. And then this one who is the cupbearer to the king, who's possibly living pretty good existence at the moment, he mourns for them. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And my heart was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the kind of character that this man has that he would be so concerned with his, his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, that when he heard about the things that are going on, when he heard about the distress that they were going through, that his heart yearned for them and he mourned for them. We don't do that. In fact, we have a very difficult time even empathizing with people that are close to us. Why? Because we don't like to feel that. It's like, I want to feel happy. I really don't want to let myself open up here and feel that kind of pain or feel that kind of suffering, feel that kind of hurt and sadness and all of that. And we close ourselves off. I want to go on my way. Everything's going good for me. I hate that for you. And I'll be praying for you. But that's really about it. We don't like doing that. These are God's covenant people. Nehemiah is part of that covenant people. And when he hears about what's going on, his heart is broken. Because they should be flourishing. Things should be going great back in Jerusalem. Back in the land of promise that God has brought his people back. But it's not. And so he mourns. He is saddened by what he hears and he is saddened to the extent that he's not just moping around, but that he is going to bury his face in prayer and he's going to fast. He's going to deny himself sustenance in order to give himself over to prayer and let his heart be poured out to the God of heaven as he refers to him. He inquired about them. He mourns for them. He prays for them. He is praying for them to the God of heaven because... He desires to help them. He desires to do something. Not just to leave them in their way. Not just to, to give it just a passing thought. He identifies himself with them. He identifies with the hurt and the pain that perhaps they're going through. And he buries his face in prayer. And this prayer is such a wonderful prayer as we've been talking about. A prayer to learn from. A prayer that 
the structure of it should be very familiar to us as well. Because what's the first thing that Nehemiah does? We see his distress. Now we're seeing Nehemiah appealing to God's character as he begins this amazing prayer. And that is important. Because Nehemiah knows the God to whom he's appealing to. He doesn't just have a general idea of who he thinks God is. He appeals to the God of heaven with with the knowledge of who he is. He's praying according to the truth that he knows of God, according to the word of God. It's very similar, actually, to Daniel's prayer, which some theologians would think that the book of Daniel was, was there. He had the writings of Daniel, perhaps being inspired by the prayer of Daniel. I think it was chapter 9 in Daniel. Because he's praying some very similar things here. But he is reflecting upon the character of God, the nature of God, as he begins his prayer. He says this, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven. You notice that that's all in capitals. The word Lord is all capitals. Indicating that this isn't—he's not just praying to praying the, the the highest exalted name of God, which is Adonai. He's saying, "O Yahweh, O Covenant God, this is the covenant name of the Lord our God. O Lord God, the strong God, the Almighty God." One writer says, "This alludes to God's almighty government." Of the world as he approaches him this way, oh Lord God, you're the powerful one, you're the Almighty. He is the God of heaven, He is the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. There's a lot there that He's reflecting upon. As he comes before God. And this is so vital to understand. Because we were just talking a minute ago. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you enter the house of God. Knowing that he's in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. Don't pray the prayer of fools. Because they don't know what they're doing. Don't speak in so many words. Because they don't know what they're doing. You pray to the God that you know. The God who is. The God according to scripture. And as you are praying to him, you are reflecting upon him. You're giving him that adoration. As any of us who have been in in Bible study with with Paul especially, whether it's been here in in a group Bible study, whether it's been the men in their Bible study, one thing that Paul has always emphasized is the, the Acts prayer. Uh, you're praying in that kind of order, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You're approaching God first and foremost, acknowledging who He is. You're giving Him praise as you are approaching Him in prayer. That's the very thing that Jesus did when He taught His disciples to pray. Father who dwells in the heavens is the idea there. You're in the heavens. You're not here on earth. You're in your own category. You're not like us. Our Father who dwells in the heavens. 
hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. Jesus taught to pray in the same way. When you approach God in prayer, you're reflecting upon the God who is. You're reflecting upon his majesty, his power. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. This is, he's praying to the God of heaven. He's praying to the faithful covenant God. He is the God who loves his people. He is the great and the awesome God. And that word awesome being used in its proper term. And in fact, other translations here and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21, say the great and terrible God. Not terrible as in you're just you're terrible as what we think, but terrible in the sense of, 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 of the true meaning of the word awesome. That which causes fear, terror, and awe at the same time. That is our God. He is awesome because he causes fear in us and terror as we consider and we, we reflect upon him. And yet we're put in awe of him. And we just can't help but keep coming closer. To the God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We need to know the character of God. And that's why I'm saying we can learn so much just from prayers like this. He sits. This is the God who, who sits on his cosmic throne with all his regal majesty. His magnificence has no bounds. This is your God. And the gravity of our king cannot be understood, cannot be grasped by our finite minds because he is he is just so far removed from anything that we could ever know. And that's why he talks to us in baby talk that we can grasp certain things about him because he's so magnificent. This is the God whose power has no limits. His wisdom is unmatched. His being cannot be cannot be captured by, by the heavens, cannot be contained by the heavens, or the highest of heavens. He's not limited by anything. This is our God. This is the God who is altogether righteous. Never does he deceive, never does he lie. There is no falsehood in him. This God delights in truth. He delights in righteousness. He delights in holiness. He delights in his people doing what what is consistent with his very nature. This is the God who loves to the utmost. Never can we understand the height or the width or the depth of the love of our God for his people. The greatest example, the greatest demonstration, of course, is sending Christ into the world to demonstrate just how great his love is, and we're still scratching the surface. His care for you because he loves you, his his, his care for you is greater than any other in existence. His devotion to you is immeasurable. It's a complete devotion to you. The God who rules the heavens, whose power is unlimited, whose magnificence is is so grand. The one who's clothed with splendor and majesty, this God is fully devoted to you, his people. Fully cares for you, 
his people. There's so much more to say about God. But this is the God that we pray to. This is the God that we have communion with. This is the God who can help, the one who never grows weary, who upholds us by his righteous right arm. Nehemiah understands, at least to the extent of the knowledge that was given to him in those in that time through oral tradition and through the written scripture, to understand the God that he's praying to. He has nowhere else to go. He has nothing that he can do in order to try to help the people of God, and so he appeals to the one who can. He is praying and understanding fully, having confidence in him, that you are able to do whatever you desire to do. Whatever your will is, none can thwart your hand, and and you can act on behalf of your people. Nehemiah isn't defeated before he ever begins his prayer. We get defeated before we ever begin our prayer. Something big coming up in our lives, and we're we're nervous about it. We hope certain things are going to, you know, pan out for us. We hope things are going to go well, and so we said, "Well, we need to pray about it." And so, just as soon as we begin to pray about it, and I am guilty of this just as well, before we even begin, eh, it's probably going to happen. Probably not going to happen that way. But I'm going to pray anyway. And the whole time you're praying, you know that that your prayer is not really genuine because you've already defeated it before you ever open your mouth. We need to pray with confidence that if we pray anything according to His will, that He hears and He grants that's the key if you pray anything according to his will if you are praying about something that's going to glorify him perhaps he will allow it to come through in order that he may receive greater glory greater glory from you you have to pray with confidence knowing that God can act God can do whatever he pleases And so we appeal to God, if this is your will, then, O Lord, may it be. He's not defeated. He is going to the one source that he knows that he can go to who can do for his people. And after he gives this this great adoration to the Lord, acknowledging that that he is the, the great and awesome God who preserves covenant and loving kindness. That's that word has said again. It's that loyal love that God has for his people. You are fully devoted to your people. You love your people with that covenant, faithful, loyal love. Your people who keep your commandments, who desire to obey you. And so now you have the confession. As he, as he acknowledges and reflects upon The Lord is God as he is beginning his prayer, reflecting upon his attributes, reflecting upon his character and his nature. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. 
the God who is, the God who exists, the God who is magnificent, the God who is high and lifted up, the God who is transcendent, I appeal to you. Hear now the prayer of your servant. You see that, that petitioning on behalf of Nehemiah, that genuineness as he's coming before the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm serious about my prayer. I'm not just praying to you just to kill some time. I am pouring out my heart to you. Oh Lord, hear and act. And then what does he do? He's in Persia. He's praying on behalf of the sons of Israel who are home. But what is he doing on their behalf? He is interceding on their behalf. Because if things are going the way that they are, maybe he has in his mind, maybe they are not acting becoming of the people of God. And maybe that's why things are the way they are back home. So, he confesses the sins of the sons of Israel, and he puts himself in that category as well. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. These are my people over here. I may not have committed the very things that they did, but we are all God's people. And so I'm interceding on their behalf. I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I am praying on their behalf and my behalf. We have all acted corruptly. We have not been faithful to you. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. <clears throat> Speaking of the entirety of the law. You have that, that, that threefold uh, phrase there, the, the, that threefold saying, which really sums up the whole law. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. We've acted corruptly. We've not been faithful. We have went our own way. We have disobeyed you. After all the great and mighty things that you have done for us, this is our response to you. We have acted very corruptly. We have acted wickedly. And, and you look back and you see in Ezra some of the things that had taken place that the people of God had done, demonstrating their disloyalty to the Lord their God. I mean, you think about that at the end of Ezra, you get to the point where, you know, you, you, every time that they would come home, they would have like a, this great time of devotion and revival in their hearts for God to establish covenant again. And then... Some years would pass by, and as I believe it was Amos uh, who had said before the captivity and all of that, as he's preaching to, I think, the northern kingdom, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. They get at ease. They lose their focus to the extent that they now start taking spouses from the very enemies of God that God had specifically said, do not intermingle with these particular people. They're idolaters. They're not serving God. They're not like, like Ruth and, and Naomi and, and those that we read of. They're not like Rahab, who started, who were Gentiles, who, who served the, the one true living God and was able to, to enter into marriage with an Israelite. These aren't the same people. That's why a thorough search was done among all who had married foreign wives. What's going on? How are these marriages going? Are you serving the God of heaven? 
a lot of people would think that that was the, the reason why there was a thorough search done, why they brought those particular couples you know, to be examined. They were still serving other gods and it was being tolerated by the people of God. This is the very thing that sent them into exile to, from the beginning. And here they are again, tolerating it. <clears throat> Whether or not they were serving the gods of their spouses, we don't know that. However, they were still tolerating it by their spouses being able to serve other gods. This is absolutely against everything that God had ever said to the people of God. In fact, when he gives the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, some of the very first things that he says there establishes what true worship ought to be. Don't make any idols. Don't bow down and worship them. There's no likeness of me on the earth. Don't make anything. And they were tolerating it. So indeed they had acted corruptly because they had not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which God had commanded them in the time in which he had entered into covenant with his people. This is a, this is a covenant. This is an agreement. I have redeemed you from, from Egypt. I have bought you. I have full authority over you. And this is what I have done on your behalf. I have brought you out of slavery. I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to establish covenant with you. The only God who is in existence has chosen you out of all the nations of the earth to be the objects of my love. And therefore, this is what you are to do. What great privilege that they had, that they still had it in those moments, even in acting corruptly as they did. So he confesses on their behalf. And it also shows us what great unity ought to exist among the people of God. As we talked about uh, their Sunday, when it comes to the unity that should exist among the people of God, you are one body of Christ. You are one temple of God. One household of God. You're not islands unto yourself. You are united all the people of God everywhere because we have all been made to drink from that, that, that one fountain which is Christ. We were all made to be baptized into the Spirit of God. We all receive the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God who is our, our, our seal, who is our pledge. We have a unity with all the people of God. And that's why theologians talk about the universal church. You're part of the universal church of God. Not just the local church, but the universal church of God. Therefore, whatever goes on in the lives of, of other brothers and sisters in Christ should affect you. Because those are your people. When you read of others in, in many of these other countries where it is not legal to be a believer or to go to church. And what horrendous things that they they have happening to them. We should be burying our face in prayer, praying on their behalf. Those are my brothers and sisters. Those are my kinsmen. Lifting them up in prayer, acknowledging the unity that we have with them. Because we do. There's a whole lot more to that. 
not just understanding that those that are being persecuted are your brothers and sisters in Christ, but those that are being led astray who are genuinely converted are your brothers and sisters in Christ too. What responsibility we ought to have for one another, to, toward one another, to help lead out of heresy or danger, to pray on each other's behalf, to empathize with each other, the very thing we don't like doing. There is a great unity that exists among the people of God that has been lost. Something that we need to be mindful of. We need to identify ourselves with them just as Nehemiah does with those that are thousands of miles away from him. Because if you are genuinely converted, you are genuinely a believer, you are part of the covenant. So if you're part of the covenant, then every other genuine believer is part of the covenant. You are the covenant people of God. Everyone collectively. He prays on their behalf. He confesses their sins confesses his sin along with theirs. We've not done right by you, O Lord. It's it's demonstrating a a heart of repentance. It's acknowledging your your disobedience to the Lord, your sin against God. You're you're acknowledging that sin, as as R.C. Sproul says, is cosmic treason against God. It is offensive to God. You acknowledge that before God in your confession unto him. I have sinned greatly against you. This is against your nature. This is against your very character. And yet I have done this even after you have redeemed me as you have. Oh Lord, turn and be gracious and act in the same for others that you are praying for. What a great confession here. Then you see his supplication. He says, remember the word which you have commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. What is he saying? Here's his prayer to the Lord. This is who you are. This is what we've done. Now, O Lord, these are your words which you have promised us. Remember the words of promise that you have, that you have given to us through your, through your servant Moses. Your, your words of hope. Your words of mercy. And every word that God speaks is a promise. You might as well take it as a promise because God cannot lie. And God doesn't retract and say, I changed my mind. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is true and it is set. It is firmly fixed. And Nehemiah appeals to the words which God had spoken. The very things that he says and what does he acknowledge in doing so? Remember your words and you remember your words, O Lord, because you're the faithful God. You are the God who is faithful. You perform what you say you will do because there is no lie in you. Here's what you said through Moses. You promised that if we were disobedient, you would scatter us. But when we turned back to you, you would gather us. These were your words, O Lord. How amazing it is to be able to understand 
that the things that God has said in His Word are firmly fixed, and then to take those very things that God has said and to pray them right back to Him. What a delight that must be for the Lord our God to have those truths being presented back to Him. There was a professor that we had over at Grand Bible College, Dr. Blevins. I used to love hearing Dr. Blevins uh, pray because he would begin his prayer praying back to the Lord parts of Scripture, a lot of times from the Psalms. He would begin his prayer reciting back to the Lord parts of the Psalms. Praying the Scripture and praying the Scripture back to the Lord who said them. That is, that is indeed very proper to do. Nehemiah is doing it. This is what you said. Here's what I'm praying back to you. This is what I'm lifting back up to you. I'm bringing it back before, before your very face, O Lord. You promised this. And then again, interceding on their behalf. This is, this is a prayer of intercession as well. They are your servants. Your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. These are the people, O Lord, that you redeemed. These are the people that you brought out of Egypt. These are the people that, that you had shown such great wonders in the land of Egypt to demonstrate your, your power and your might. To demonstrate that you are the God of all the earth. But the Egyptian gods are no gods at all. What mighty wonders that you did as you brought your people out and then you bring them into this land. You established covenant with them to be their God and they be your people and to, to have them as the apple of your eye. They are your servants, O Lord. Remember the words which you had spoken concerning them because you are faithful. You redeemed them by your strong hand. You bought them. That word uh, you know, redeemed is, is used, of course, in the New Testament, speaking of what Christ had done on behalf of his people. He bought you. That's why the scripture tells us. That's why the apostle Paul tells us you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Your body is not your own, he says. God has all authority over it because of what great and mighty things that he had done to redeem you. Yeah, this, is, this is something that you find within the Old Testament, you find it in the New, that before God ever commands you to do something, He reminds you of the God that He is. Beforehand, before the captivity, or before they were slaves in Egypt, He referred to Himself as, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, because He first established covenant with Abraham. He is the covenant God who has entered into relationship with man. Specifically, Abraham passed to Isaac, passed to Jacob. But then when they come out of Egypt, that's the very thing that he tells them. Uh, and, and in Exodus chapter 20, before he starts to give them the Ten Commandments, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is what I have done for you. I have full authority over you. You're mine. And that's what Nehemiah is bringing back, all this, this covenant language. Now, does the Lord have to hear that sort of thing to be like, oh, I forgot. 
I didn't remember showing such mighty works in Egypt and then bringing these people out. I maybe forgot about them during the time that I sent them into Babylon. I don't forget anything. It's not like he's giving him new information. But what is he praying? He's praying in truth. He's praying according to the promise that God has made, and God delights in that. Because what are you doing? You're taking seriously the things that God has said in his word. You're taking it to heart. It's firmly fixed. This is what you said, and I have confidence that you will keep it because you cannot lie. Oh, Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Not only are they your servants, not only did you promise these things, I'm praying on their behalf that you would be merciful and let your face once again shine upon them. Here's a prayer for him, too. He's getting ready to go before the king because he desires to act on behalf of his people. And so he prays to the Lord first because that's the source of, of, of anything that ever happens. It's going to be by the Lord's doing, and it's going to be by the will of the Lord. And then he prays, give me favor with this man. I'm getting ready to go before the king, and I'm going to petition the king on behalf of the sons of Israel, too. It's very similar to what happened in the book of Ezra. Because... In Ezra, in Daniel, any time the king granted them something, they gave praise to God because they knew it came from God's hand. And so this is Nehemiah's prayer specifically for himself. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. You have all authority and right over your people. Act on their behalf and act on my behalf as I do this. He's serious about his praying. His praying is his prayer is genuine. It is pouring out his heart. He has confidence in God as he is as he is approaching God. His demeanor is is humble. He's coming humbly before God. He's not coming arrogantly. He's not coming irreverently. He's coming remembering to whom he's praying to. And then he's making his petitions known. Knowing, again, knowing and having confidence that God can act. And if it's according to his will, he will act. What confidence that he has. What confidence that we ought to have. It says, of course, that he was the cupbearer to the king. He was maybe one of a couple cupbearers. Either way, he had great favor with the king. But do you see some of these things that are in this prayer are things that we can take away from to, to teach us how to pray and to implement certain things into our prayer, into our prayer time with God. To reflect upon his character as we begin our prayer. This isn't just any God. This isn't just any any one that, we're, we're, that we would talk to at any other time. Yes, we, we understand that, that idea that, you know, 
as, as it was said of Abraham, you know, he was a friend of God and all of that, and we like to use that language too, that God is a friend to us, his people, and all of that. But we don't talk to God in the same way that we talk to each other. Because God's not in our category. We talk to each other like equals. Because we are. We're not his equal. He is so far removed from us. Again, he's the one who is high and lifted up in a category all to himself who is, by his very nature, holy. The very thing that we're not. And so we approach him recognizing that very thing. And we delight, and we should delight in recognizing that very thing. Because, because God is holy, and uh, we talk about God's holiness being the sum of all the divine attributes of God. Because he is holy, because he is love, because he is righteous, because he is good, because he is kind, because of all those amazing things that we read of, of who God is, and then recognizing the other things that are the what's called the incommunicable attributes of God, the attributes that belong to God only, thinking and reflecting upon his power. You have infinite power. You are infinitely above all. You have all wisdom. Who can compare to you? And then nothing can contain you. And you've entered in relationship with us. That should delight your heart to consider the holiness of God. And then to speak those things back to him. Because he's worthy of all praise and honor. Because he is unique. And then we acknowledge who we are before Him. And we should be praying, acknowledging that very thing, who we are before you. We're nothing before you. But in Christ, you make us something. In Christ, you have made us to be children of God. That I can call you Father, as almighty as you are. What a mighty God. How far removed you are from us in the sense of who we are compared to you. And yet, I am privileged to come before your throne of grace and to call you Father. And to appeal to you as a Father. We acknowledge who we are. He's not our equal. And we're nothing compared to Him. But again, in Christ, we are part of the family of God. In Christ, we are children of God. In Christ, the Father delights having us come before His presence. And we confess. We confess our shortcomings. We forget. We confess our sins. We, we confess these things not just to, 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 to have, have a time of... of, of of sorrow and moping around and all of that just to make us depressed. But we acknowledge who we are because when we acknowledge and confess our sins and we confess our shortcomings and we confess our wickedness and our wicked thoughts and the, the, the vile things that we say or any of that, it should promote in us an even greater appreciation for the mercy of God that has been shown to us in Christ. And so the outcome of that is we praise God even more. Thank you. That my salvation is not dependent upon me, but it's all dependent upon you. Because as Nehemiah is pointing out, you're the faithful God 
who has called me into your marvelous light, that in Christ you'll never leave me and you'll never abandon me. I am yours to the end, in spite of me. And Father, I pray to you, not only on my behalf, but on the behalf of, of others in my family, of, of, of our brothers and sisters that are going through such horrendous things in this world, oh God, we know that you do all things well and that you do the thing that brings you the most glory. Give them the grace that they need in order to endure. How may we help? How may we encourage them? There's things that we should be praying for and interceding for on behalf of others. Their hearts are absolutely broken. They don't even know what to pray, Lord. But, but you know the need. You know this greater than anyone else. You know this more intimately than even the one that's going through it. And you can bestow your grace and mercy there. You can give them such grace to endure. Praying on behalf of others and praying confidently on behalf of others and praying genuinely on behalf of others is exactly what should be taking place. Even praying on behalf of those whom you don't like. Praying on behalf of those that are in power whom you don't like. Because it's pleasing to the Lord to pray on behalf of kings and all who are in authority. Because God is not just the God who delights in saving those who are the, the, the unwise of the world or the, the common of the world. He delights in saving all categories of people for kings and all who are in authority. And so we pray on their behalf as well. Praying and having confidence that God can change a heart no matter how far gone we may think it is. And again, as you pray, fill yourself with the word of God before you pray. Because then you have substance. You have, you have substance to appeal to before, if you, if you pin your prayer or you just read scripture and then you just pray. You have substance concerning the very nature and the character of God that you just read of in order to pray it back to him always reflecting upon the character of, of the God to whom we serve. There's so many great lessons here to reflect upon, to ponder on when it comes to prayer and how to pray. I pray that all of us, this is my prayer, that all of us would go back to the scripture in passages like this and read them over again and then take the things that we're learning here and the approach that they are taking to the Lord and the things that they are reflecting upon his character and nature and we begin to implement them in our own prayer and having great confidence in the time that we give over to the Lord to pray to him because we should. We should have confidence. He's our sovereign God who rules over the heavens and we have the privilege of coming before him praying, casting our care upon him knowing that he rules over everything. That should give you great confidence. And I pray that we would begin these things if we haven't already, implementing them in prayer. In fact, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Oh, great and awesome God, we give you thanks that in Christ we may approach your throne of grace. Truly, there is reason to be fearful of you how mighty that you are, how holy that you are, 
Indeed, that should cause us fear. You are the holiest of all. We recognize that we're not. But in Christ, you have invited us to come. To come before the throne of grace to receive grace. So while we have that fear of you, and we pray, Lord, that you would increase our fear, that we would come reverently before you. Yet by the Spirit of God who dwells within us, there is still that awe that we have that we desire to, to, to approach your throne of grace closer and closer because of your magnificence and the privilege we have of coming before you. Father, teach us how we ought to pray. Let us grow in our praying, grow in our confidence, grow in our reflection upon your majesty, your great attributes that we read of in Scripture, to pray them right back to you. Praying in truth unto you, the God of heaven. Father, move mightily among us. Take this passage of Scripture and apply it to our hearts. Let us grow. Grow in our relationship. Grow in our love. Grow in our devotion to you. Grow in our confidence. Thank you so much for passages like this. And Father, as we have entered into this book, I pray that we would only grow from it. Again, growing in our sanctification. And we pray that the Spirit of God would indeed do a mighty work in all of us. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Thank you all for your attention, and you are dismissed.